Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for yet another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 104 for the 3rd 3rd of March 2014. The topic I'm going to talk about today is pyramids on Mars. The claim for this episode is really a very simple one, that there are clear, distinct, obvious pyramids with artificial geometry on the planet Mars. So now, the simple way to go about this is to look at what evidence they put forward, see if it's real or valid, and if it is, see if there are other, more likely explanations. Otherwise, you're invoking the single cause fallacy, or the fallacy of the single cause, which is where you have a singular phenomenon that could have many different causes but you can only think of one, or you're only putting one forward. The evidence that is used by proponents of pyramids on Mars is very similar to that used by face-on-Mars proponents. They see buttes and mesas that appear regular, geometric, and to have three, four, or five sides. And the claim is that intelligence reveals itself through geometry. These pyramids, uh, how perfectly shaped, how perfectly pyramidal are they? Uh, they're they're. They're pretty. They're pretty perfect. They're, they're quite uh, perfect. They're. They're. Uh, they look identical to, uh, to one another. And as I recall, there are five or six uh, of them in the uh, image. And there are at least. There's at least one and possibly two images that were put out. Richard C. Hoagland is, of course, an advocate of the pyramids on Mars. And as with many, he draws relationships between them and the face on Mars. On the left. That is the partial edges of a former tetrahedron, which is a four-cornered, four-sided pyramid. All right? It's one of the so-called platonic solids. Yep. Now, the reason I'm so intrigued with this, is, if you scroll back up a little bit, is this tetrahedron isn't sitting on Mars just any old place. It's sitting about halfway between the face and this big, massive pyramid to the south called the DNM. I agree. And it is, if you draw a line between the apex of the pyramid and the midpoint between the eyes and the face. It's 19.5. degrees to that line is this tetrahedral ruin. For more on 19.5 degrees and Richard Hoagland, refer back to episode 26. And while you heard over a minute of Richard talking about some of this geometry and tetrahedron and angle stuff, I spared you the next 15, which is more of the same. If anyone is really, really interested, you can feel free to contact me for the full clip. Moving on, there's nothing to move on from or to. That is the evidence that is presented, that these features look like pyramids. In examining that evidence, it's reasonable. Especially in low-resolution images from Mariner and Viking, these hills look pyramidal. And in these early images, when contrast is especially high, they look fairly perfect because you see a nice, bright, saturated side and darker sides that appear nice and smooth. And you can reasonably draw angles, and they are somewhat coming out to even things like 109 or 120 degrees on a five-sided pyramid, or 90 degrees on a four-sided pyramid, or what is it, 60 degrees on a three-sided pyramid. There will be some links in the show notes that illustrate these. But that's about as far as it goes. Nowadays, we have much better cameras with much better dynamic range. Listen to episodes 47 and 48 for that stuff. And we can see these features in much more detail. The pyramid shape doesn't go away, unlike the face on Mars. But they are no longer in any way perfect. 
The would-be apex is distorted, the sides are curved, the edges are wavy, and the slopes are distorted. One can simply say that these are eroded features now, and that's why they're not exact. These really are pyramids, but they've just been eroded. But under the meter and submeter scale resolution that we now have, they look much more like something else. They look like natural, windswept features. But that's impossible, you might say. Others would agree with you, such as Michael Luckman. You know, the old uh, hundred monkey thing, isn't it possible that faces appear where the human mind, uh, I mean, after all, we all pour over these photographs looking for anything at all that, that registers in our brain as not possibly not natural. The human mind looks for that. You're automatically looking for life or signs of Absolutely. life. Or, okay, so what about that theory then? Uh, no, no question about it. We, we look to, 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 to put things on our in terms that we can understand. On the other hand, unless there's something uh, very strange about the wind, uh, let's say on Mars, that creates, uh, you know, uh, uh, not only uh, faces repeatedly, but uh, but but perfectly formed uh, uh, pyramids. Uh, for example, one of the areas that hardly ever gets mentioned is uh, is uh, an area uh, uh, called Elysium, uh, which Carl Sagan has spoken about. Uh, Elysium has, uh, there are some photographs that were taken uh, by NASA that shows huge pyramids, pyramids twice as tall as what the size of, of, of the, the height of the World Trade Center. Mm -hmm. Pyramids? Twice as tall as the height of the World Trade Center. For these, photo, for these pyramids uh, to be uh, uh, naturally formed, uh, they would have had, their wind would have to be blowing, geologists feel, in the same direction, from three different directions, I'm sorry, at the same speed. How, uh, yeah, well, that's not, well, I don't think it's possible. I don't uh, think it's possible either. Or you'd be in the same camp as, say, Richard Hoagland. We have this object we call the D&M Pyramid. It's gigantic. It's gigantic. It's about a mile and a half on the long side, a mile on the short side. Wow. I call it D&M after DiPietro and Molinar back in 87, when I was writing monuments and doing the first investigations, because they actually were the two Goddard imaging guys that found it back in 1979. Okay. And so I figured they deserved a place on Mars. And All right, now you scroll a little further down, you'll see two images of the same pyramid side by side. The one on the left is the is an enhanced version. We kind of contrast, sure. enhanced it. Yes. And we got an overlay showing five sides to it. This came from my friend Errol Torin. Yeah, that's very clear. The geomorphologist that defends mapping who came to me in the late 80s and said, Hoagland, this damn thing should not exist. Under any geomorphological analyses I can perform, there's no way that a five-sided figure like this can exist in nature because if it was sculpted by the winds, if the wind was blowing in one direction, Art, it would remove the other sides. Yeah, so, so there, the the, nevertheless, around, nevertheless, there it is. You'd basically get a dome. You wouldn't get a planar object with facets. Okay, that's clear. There are at least two formal logical fallacies in here. The first being the argument from authority, the geomorphologist says something, and the fallacy of the single cause. The problem is that you can claim something that has only one cause because that's the only thing you can possibly think of, but that's an argument from ignorance, just as much as it is an argument from authority. Think of it this way. When I did episode 90 on the Billy Meyer information on Jupiter and Saturn, one of the primary issues was that Michael Horn and others 
were relying on press releases and other documents that came out after Meyer published his information. Whether purposely or not, they then said that therefore, Meyer was the first to know about the information because they couldn't, or wouldn't, find information prior to Meyer's. I then did. All because you can't find something or think of something does not mean that it does not exist, which is why proving a negative, or proving when something was the first to be discovered, is practically impossible except in mathematical proofs. In this case, the geomorphologist and Michael Luckman and Richard Hoagland and Art Bell are apparently not familiar with star dunes. These are very neat, very natural formations that we see all the time on Earth. They are sand dunes that, from the top down, look like stars. They're five-sided, nice, smooth sides, generally regular lines between them, and usually a slightly distorted apex. They form in places where there is a lot of sand, and the wind patterns are very complex. They can form with three, four, five, or more slip faces, or sides, with arms between them, or creases, or the, you know, angle sides of a pyramid, or what would look like a pyramid. On Earth, they tend to grow upwards as the complex wind patterns force more sand to pile on top and then slide down the other faces. That's why they're called slip faces. The next day, or next week, or next month, you then get wind from a different direction, pushing sand up a different face. Combinations of that and cementing by a teensy bit of water, or just even the interlocking irregular grains, helps them to maintain their shape as they grow. We see them a lot on Earth in regions of the Sahara, the Badain Jaran uh, Desert in China, I apologize to anyone who speaks Chinese, and there are even some in the Great Sand Dunes National Monument a few hours south of me in Colorado, and it's going on our uh, National Parks quarter. And the tallest ones on Earth, by the way, are up to 500 meters, or practically a third of a mile tall. So right away, just from these very clear, very natural features on Earth, we have to throw out that argument from ignorance, authority, and single cause. What we are left is, can these form on Mars? And is it more likely that they are therefore natural features on Mars or unnatural ones? The answer, which I'll just jump right to, is that yes, they can form on Mars, or features like them can form on Mars. It's true, the atmosphere today on Mars is about 1% of Earth's. In the past, it was much more. It's also true that some of these dunes, or some of these at least features, these star-like, pyramid-like features on Mars, are taller than 500 meters, the tallest ones on Earth. It's also true that these are not probably really sand dunes, at least not today. In episode 59, the Face on Mars Part 1, I spent a lot of time talking about the context of the region of the planet where the Cydonia Mesa, the Face on Mars, lies. It's in the dichotomy boundary, the area between the North and South Hemispheres that sees several kilometers change in elevation, and it's embedded within chaotic terrain that is still somewhat of an enigma, although we do have a reasonable idea of a lot of the processes that probably shaped it and still shape it today, and shaped the stuff within it, like the eroded mesa that, under some lighting and in a low-resolution camera with fortuitous data dropouts, looks something like a face, and others look like pyramids. It's no accident that the vast majority of pyramid-like structures that people point to on Mars are also in this region of the planet. The winds there blow in different directions as they get funneled around the various large topographic structures and of course change slightly with direction with the season. Features get eroded and sandblasted. Well, sandblasted is a process of erosion, but anyway. 
These probably are not stardunes, although it's possible that they are fossilized stardunes. That means that they were originally formed as stardunes, got buried and turned to rock, and then the material that buried them eroded away. We also see this on Earth, so it's fairly easy to picture a scenario where maybe 4 billion years ago, with a heavier atmosphere, more water, the stardunes formed, then as the atmosphere went away and the water went away, erosion happened, buried these, and then as erosion continued to happen, that less cemented material that surrounded the dunes got blown away. Again, we see this kind of thing on Earth as well, so it's not crazy conspiracy or crazy ad hoc thinking in order to come up with this type of scenario. We also know that the dunes on Mars grow very, very tall. The ones that we see today, some of them are over a kilometer high. So that's not really a problem with this model for explaining the pyramid, these tall pyramid-like features. Another way that these can form is by erosion itself. We know that mesas and buttes form through wind and other erosional processes, but if you have, again, this concept of this complex wind that shifts directions over the course of weeks or months because of various topographic reasons, you'll get erosion along multiple sides that can form the three, four, five, or more sided pyramid-like features. It's not as hard as you'd expect, and as long as the wind isn't completely even in all directions, unlike what Richard Hoagland said, you will get these features with sides rather than a smooth dome. And it's not just wind that will do it. Despite the news constantly announcing that we've discovered water on Mars for the first time, again, we've known that there is ice locked up in many rocks on the planet, both now and in the past. Mechanically locked, not chemically, in something that we call a rock glacier, which is something that I didn't know about until about a decade ago when I took a field trip as part of a geology class. Anyway, the rocks surrounding the ice, that's sort of what a rock glacier is, it's this mixture of ice and rocks, the rocks that surround the ice keep it insulated, and so it keeps the ice frozen, even if the temperature sort of above the rock glacier gets a little bit warmer than the melting point. But if it gets too warm, the ice is going to start to melt or sublimate, sublimating meaning it turns directly from a solid to a gas, and the rock glacier will become unstable and fall. Just as an avalanche on Earth typically creates a smooth face, the slip face, rather than a rounded hill, except at the bottom, a rock glacier collapse on Mars we would expect to give us a smooth face rather than a rounded hill, except for the debris at the bottom. Combine that with multiple slips, changing winds, and you would not not expect to see these pyramid-like features. In other words, this is another viable explanation for how they can form. Another reason that it's no accident that these are found near the face is that's where people are looking. Many face aficionados are eager to show that the face is real, not only by the questionable analysis that I talked in the two-parter episodes 59 and 60, but also by association. They claim that not only is the face real, but that it's within this large artificial complex with not only the face, but also pyramids, a fort, and other features that they've termed a city, or at least Richard Hoagland has. Each additional feature that they can claim looks artificial will add credibility in that mindset to the whole thing, to all of the features being artificial. Also, since that's where they're looking, that's where they're going to find the features. 
The point of this episode is not to prove that there are no artificial pyramids on Mars. Just as I explained that Hoagland and others claiming that they could not form naturally is like proving a negative, which you can't do, me claiming that there are no artificial pyramids on Mars would also be asserting and then trying to prove a negative. Instead, I hope that I've at least convincingly demonstrated that these features not only can, but they do form naturally through various processes. And we see them on Earth, so there's no excuse to claim that they can't form naturally, especially if you spend years studying this stuff as people such as Hoagland have. Then it's simply a matter of where you stand philosophically. Is it more likely that they formed by natural processes and they look like the ones that naturally form on Earth, or is it more likely that aliens built them and they look that way because of erosion? For me, I go with the former. In this somewhat shorter episode today, it's time for the puzzler, where, well, not each episode, but in various episodes, I attempt to ask a critical thinking question based loosely on the material discussed in the main segment. The scenario in episode 102 was crop circles, and the question was, how would we know if something were Earth-made or alien-made, or at least a question to that effect? As you might expect given what was discussed in this episode, my thinking on the issue is that you can't unless there's something very, very weird, very extraordinary about it. Paul, from Los Angeles, just two dates ago, seems to agree. He wrote, I don't think it's possible to know ahead of time, at least not in a UFO sighting from afar situation. Anything we think of would be thinkable by someone else, which could then be created digitally or via some sleight-of-hand method trick someone into thinking they saw it. Additionally, since we don't have other worlds to compare against, we can't make a positive identification match against the possible object. The tact one would probably be forced to take is to prove that the object is definitely not a match to anything worldly, or at least from Earth. This quickly gets into a proving a negative problem, which wouldn't be theoretically insurmountable, as the world is finite, but it would probably be practically insurmountable. The thing would have to be subject to so much more than visual inspection before any reasonable scientist could begin to suggest the only explanation for something is otherworldly. Tim also wrote in to say, quote, All I can think of is if the aliens used some material from their home planet and they had funky isotopes, or if they had blueprints we could date to when the thing came out. End quote. Uh, so yeah, I generally agree. This rush to claiming that Crop circles definitely formed by aliens. It's, again, you're assuming a single cause, you're jumping to a conclusion, you're jumping to the one that you want without any actual evidence. Because, again, you get into a situation where, well, all because I don't know how it could have been done by humans, that doesn't mean that it couldn't have been done by humans. There is no puzzler for this episode, but the next few episodes are probably going to be about the Pioneer Anomaly, Electric Comets by James McKenney, and yet another version of Planet X, this time by Marshall Masters. So, if you have any ideas for puzzlers related, even vaguely, to any of those topics, please send them in. 
For announcements, the most important one is that I'm going to be on the Reality Remix Internet Radio Program this coming Wednesday, yes, sorry, short notice, March 26th, for the second hour of the program, starting at 11 o'clock p.m. Eastern Daylight Time in the U.S., which I think, if I did the math right, is Thursday, March 27th, at 3 a.m. UTC. I will be posting the link to it in the show notes, but if you like the sound of my voice and can attempt to type this out, it is www.illustrial.net that's illustrial.net slash ATS live radio slash index.php slash reality hyphen remix. I think it should be posted online afterwards, but I will at least try to record it from my end as well. Reality Remix is a program done by the folks at the Above Top Secret Forum, one of the premier or premier places for conspiracy discussion. That in mind, I've found them to be more critical of conspiracies than your general internet person, and they want me on to talk about Hoagland, Barra, John Lear, Planet X, etc., etc., in the space of one hour. So it should be, at the very least, interesting and I would encourage everyone to listen. The other sort of announcement, and one that I'm pretty sure you will have already heard by the time you listen to this, and if you haven't, you will hear ad nauseum on other skeptical podcasts, is that the lineup for TAM 2014 in Las Vegas in July has been posted. I am not a speaker this year in any way, shape, or form, although I do plan to submit a Sunday morning paper uh, abstract talk application thingamajigger. Anyway... Uh, That doesn't mean that I won't attend. Right now, there's about a 90% chance of me going. So regardless, I do encourage, of course, anyone who can, is able, is interested in attending. I've gone for the past two years, and I find it a fun three or four or five, depending on how many days you stay, days. uh, It is an experience. They say that it's the TAM experience, and I actually think that's one of the names of their all-inclusive packages. But at least for me personally... It has been an experience. You eat, sleep, and breathe it. I've been to other conferences. I go to them all the time for work. That's why this podcast is coming out a day and a half late. This is you're up at 7, and you are doing skepticism and hearing talks and talking with people and seeing booths until 2 or 3 a.m. Very little sleep, 20 hours or more or less if you really need sleep of skepticism all day for three or four days. I recommend going. I will probably be going, but I wanted to put it out there, a nice little free advert for the folks at the James Randi Education Foundation. And, of course, if you do go, and I go, please find me. I will, again, try to hold some sort of podcast meetup for the half a dozen who will come. I might even bring food again. So with that in mind, I'm going to wrap up this episode that I'm attempting to drag out so it's a full half hour. That wraps up this topic for the 104th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. I thank you for listening. 
I sincerely thank you for listening, and I do hope that you enjoyed it, and I would even more sincerely thank you for enjoying it, and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, you can use the feedback form on the website, or send an email, it's really easy, podcast at, as opposed to dot, sjrdesign.net. You can even leave a comment on the page for the episode on the website, the blog post for the episode, the Facebook page for the podcast, and you can even tweet me. I'm in that whole Twitter-verse thingamajigger, at pseudo, P-S-E-U-D-O, astro, A-S-T-R-O. I do read every message. I'm perpetually behind by several months on responding, and I appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, you can always feel free to make them, and I implore you to please write a review, rate the podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice, and tell people that you liked it, assuming you did, or tell them you liked it even if you didn't. 